My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Emma, an author of contemporary fantasy novels who was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis when she was just 16 years old. Emma has channeled these experiences into a new work of fiction called On the Bank of Oblivion, in which a teenage boy named Owen experiences an illness that seems small at first, but gets bigger and bigger, and soon a mysterious stranger appears in his dreams, offering help but at a cost. And as you'll hear on the podcast today, this work of fiction reflects many of the real-life experiences that Emma has had with chronic fatigue syndrome. After almost 20 years of living with this disease, Emma is finally ready to start talking about it in public. And this podcast is the first time that she will publicly do so, even though she is a podcaster herself on the Indie Book Talk podcast. But she's made huge strides in learning to live with this disease, learning to incorporate it into her life, and now into her creative work with this new book. And it made for an absolutely fantastic episode of the podcast. I related so much to what she had to say, so much to her story, and she delivered it in such an incredible way. So I'm really, really excited to share this episode with you. I have our usual quick announcements before we get into our discussion with Emma, and then we'll jump right into it in a couple minutes here. Uh, but before we do, I have to thank our Patreon producers, the people who are supporting this show every month on Patreon at the highest tier of $25 per month, which is so appreciated. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Thank you so much to the rest of our Patreon community supporting us at either $2 per month or $7 per month. And everyone who supports the show on Patreon gets access to our monthly bonus podcasts. And Andy and I will actually be sitting down within the next few days to record a podcast for the month of September. And it's going to be great because Andy and I actually just got back from a trip to Tofino, BC, which was a little town I didn't even know existed until recently, but we had a really amazing trip through Canada. Um, lots to tell you about that, but we're going to save it for the bonus podcast. So keep an eye out for that if you are signed up on Patreon. And if you are not signed up and you'd like to support this podcast, if you'd like to gain uh, access to these bonus episodes, get special recognition and gifts, you can find all of that information at Patreon patreon.com slash major pain podcast. You can also support this podcast and the chronic illness community by signing up through rare patient voice to participate in research studies and surveys and get paid for your time. If you have a diagnosis of any kind, sign up on Rare Patient Voice to have your voice heard in research studies and surveys that are aimed at finding better therapies for your disease. So no matter what disease you have or if you are a caretaker, sign up at rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. You can find that link in the show notes for this episode. Don't forget to follow this podcast on our social media platforms, Instagram and TikTok at Major Pain Podcast. Shoot me an email, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com if you have something that you'd like to share with the rest of us. And don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to this show. This is the third episode in our trilogy of episodes about chronic fatigue syndrome and post-viral illness. Very similar themes coming up in all of these episodes, and it was so fascinating to hear from several different people what they've been living through, first with the post-viral podcast with Stu and Lindsay, and then with Jennifer last week telling us about her Epstein-Barr reactivation and long COVID, 
and now this week talking to Emma about chronic fatigue syndrome. So I have learned a ton. I hope you have as well. And next week, we'll be moving on to a brand new topic, hyperhidrosis, uh, a disease that I had never heard of before speaking with the person we speak to next week. So it's a really great episode. Make sure you're subscribed and stay tuned for more amazing stories about living with chronic illness here on the Major Pain Podcast. As always, I will remind you that my guest and I are not medical professionals. We are real-life people with chronic illnesses sharing our stories, but please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this show without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we're going to jump into our incredible episode with Emma about chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, the little I know of your story and your writing, it sounds like we're going to have a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about. I hope so. I, I have lots to share. So this is the first podcast where I've talked about my chronic illness. So Really? Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear about it. Uh, but before we get to that, let's get to know you a little bit. Emma, why don't you tell us about yourself? My name is Emma G. Rose, and I am an author of contemporary fantasy novels. I founded Imperative Press Books in 2018 to publish my novels, and I've been exploring the world of indie publishing with the Indie Book Talk podcast. I'm also a professional freelance writer, so I do, in fact, write for a living, and I have clients all over the country who mostly are in the education and technology spaces, but uh, are sometimes outside of that in fun ways. Like one of my long-term clients is an animation company. So oh, cool. I get to do fun things with them. Uh, I live in Maine and I grew up in Maine, but moved away for about 10 years and came back. And so I have this small little house, like 700 square feet in Maine with me and my dog and my partner. And uh, it's been awesome to be back in my home state and being a Maine author is an experience. <laughs> I just visited Maine for the first time and it was so cool. I really, really enjoyed it. It's a beautiful state. It's been hot lately, which is not normal for us, but it is beautiful here. And you really get to be kind of out in the country where I am and mm. experience nature. Saw a shooting star the other day. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> so you're a fantasy author. What are your big fantasy influences? Oh, so I'm mildly obsessed with Terry Pratchett. Mm. And by mildly obsessed, I mean completely and totally obsessed. And I have every <laughs> book the man wrote, and that's a lot of books. Yeah. Um, he, what Terry Pratchett taught me uh, is that you can write about really hard things in entertaining and even funny ways. Mm. So he's like the king of satire, right? And he tells stories about just horrible things. I mean, stories about what it's like to experience racism and stories about uh, being on the wrong side of the law or being on the wrong side of justice and not knowing what you're supposed to do. And like just really complex, difficult things about being human, but all of his books will make you laugh out loud. Yeah. And I hope that I've adopted a little bit of that in my own writing because I tend to write about death and grief and chronic illness and things that aren't easy topics, but I want them to be engaging and fun and 
interesting for people so that you can enjoy the story on that level, but also maybe be getting a deeper message as well. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And I know you're, I know you, you, you mentioned you haven't, before we started recording, you have a new book coming out. Um, and the, one of the reasons we were connected is because it's sort of about your experience with chronic illness, but put into a, a fictional form, um, which I'm really excited to hear more about. I, just, I love that idea. I think that's so cool. Yeah, so it's called On the Bank of Oblivion, and the main character is a teenage boy named Owen. He is a junior, the summer between junior and senior year, or right before then, at the beginning of the story, and he has a tickle in his throat. And for a lot of us with chronic illness, this is a common story, right? Mm. You have this like, what seems like a small thing at first, and then it turns into a big thing, and then it never quite goes away. <laughs> and so Owen is on that trajectory of, it's a small thing at the start of the story, and he doesn't know what's gonna happen next. And that was, uh, it's mirroring in some ways my own experience because I was diagnosed when I was 16 after probably about a year of having no idea what was going on and just mm. getting progressively worse and worse for a good eight months. Um, and so Owen is experiencing some parts of that, but also with some fantasy elements included. Um, there's a mysterious stranger who appears kind of in his dreams, um, who wants to help him, but may be doing so at a cost. Mm. And so it's really this question of what are you willing to do to feel better? And what's the difference between really feeling better and just feeling better right now? Mm, wow. I, I'm excited to read it because, you know, I really relate to what you're talking about. I mean, the, the, the lengths to which I have gone to try to find some relief from my chronic illness and like the, co the financial cost, you know, when you talk Absolutely. about the cost, like it, with chronic illness, it's often financial. Um, that didn't work. You know, these things that I, these rabbit holes that I went down that didn't help. And if anything kind of made me worse sometimes, um, mm -hmm. just imagining translating that into like sort of an Alice in Wonderland type scenario of like, you know, down the rabbit hole. Uh, but with like wild, they turn this naturopath into like a wild character. That's like this person who's like <laughs> tempting you. <laughs> I, it's such a cool idea. It's something that I'd never thought about or heard about before. And I, I'm really, you know, I'm really taken with that idea of, of translating a chronic illness journey into a fictional story. Uh, I think that's just such a cool idea. Um, but let's like, let's get to know your chronic illness story. I'm excited to hear about this. So Emma, what is your major pain? My major pain is chronic fatigue syndrome or ME. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I still have had this since I was 16 and I still can't pronounce it. <laughs> and it wasn't called ME when I was 16. This sure. is one of those conditions that's gone through many permutations. But um, I do have chronic fatigue syndrome and I was diagnosed as a teenager, which at the time was fairly unusual. I'm 35 now, so mm. it's been a while. Uh, but it's been a while and it's been a journey <laughs> and I'm only just now starting to sort of come out and talk about it. The, this story and writing this story has forced me to face the parts of it that are not just quirky things about me, but are really actually part of this illness that mm. 
I tend to ignore when I can. And it turns out you can't ignore chronic illness for very long. It will rise up and demand to be paid attention to. <laughs> so true. Um, so tell us about chronic fatigue syndrome, because, you know, uh, people hear that and they think you're tired all the time. So I, there's so much more to it than that. So tell us about what it means to you. So the you're tired all the time thing is 100% true, yeah. but it's sort of reductionist, right? Mm -hmm. Lots of things can make you tired, but there's a difference between I feel sleepy and I am bone weary and can't pick up my foot. Yeah. The example that I always come back to is when I was 16, I was in high school. We had uh, a two-story school and we had a flight of stairs that had a landing and then a second flight, right? And I remember at 16 years old having to stop on the landing because I needed to rest before I went up the second flight of stairs. Mm -hmm. And that's the level of exhaustion we're talking about. And it can be in weird, it can appear in weird ways and it's really inconsistent. So if you meet me on any given day, you wouldn't necessarily know, you know, you can't tell by looking that there's anything wrong. Mm -hmm. I can seem like a very energetic person and I sometimes am a very energetic person, but the things that my body doesn't want to do, it violently doesn't want to do. So the biggest piece of it, I think that people misunderstand is uh, something called post-exertion malaise. Mm -hmm. And when you have chronic fatigue, a lot of times you can't tell in the moment that what you're doing is a problem. So I could go on a 12 mile hike and feel great the whole time and just be like, yep, great, I'm walking awesome i can carry a pack it's great and then for four days after that be just bedridden mm -hmm. because it's like your body rebels and says nope you you stressed us out too much and it's fine in the moment but don't do that anymore and so now you have to sleep for three days so that has been a big struggle overall with trying to get that balance of enough activity so that my muscles and joints don't hurt all the time, which is another symptom, mm -hmm. uh, but not so much activity that I knock myself out and can't do anything. Uh, and for me, though, that's like the biggest piece. I do have some struggles with food in terms of um, I can't eat beef. I don't know why. It makes me feel bad. It mm. just does and i don't have like a scientific reason and i'm not advocating that anyone else out there stop eating beef it's just for me when i eat it i feel crappy so there's no point i just don't do it um too much sugar you know things like that like dietary extremes can can trigger issues uh and then there's just the kind of random aches and pains that you know, some days I wake up and my right ankle hurts. Why? I don't know. I didn't do anything to it. It's just decided today that it's the joint that wants to hurt. And I get random headaches. And I've only had one headache that I would call an actual migraine with like the ocular mm, migraine the, the symptom. Aura. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was, unsurprisingly, after a heavy workout that I probably shouldn't have been doing. And I came home and was starting to get tired. And then I had this, this migraine response. So 
it's just a one of those weird fluffy constellations of symptoms that <laughs> it's hard to explain to anyone because they're like well just like sleep more or like rest <laughs> <laughs> and what they don't understand is that sleep more can help in some cases but it's not really a cure yeah uh i can't sleep 20 hours a day and if i did i'd feel terrible and i'd probably still be tired <laughs> right totally um i just interviewed uh Stu and lindsay from the post viral podcast who both have chronic fatigue syndrome and are you know talk a lot about how um, one of you know we don't really understand chronic fatigue syndrome unfortunately like there's no great treatment for it because we don't really understand it but one of the theories around it is uh that it might be a your body's response to some sort of virus that you've had in the past like a post-viral response that just doesn't go away is that something that that you've heard about or something you've thought about in your situation i can actually point to this specific instance wow so i was always a pretty healthy kid you know i wasn't the kid who got sick i never missed school and i you know other kids around me would would have a cold or whatever and i, I just wouldn't get it and once when i was about 15 uh my whole family got some sort of like sinusy upper respiratory throat thing mm. right just one of those icky things that sort of gets passed around your family yeah and everyone else felt better and i mostly felt better you know they gave you gave us antibiotics did the whole thing and i mostly felt better except that i still had this weird like throat thing right it was just this weird feeling in my throat mm. and i remember being in show chorus uh not doing the dancing part yet but just like sitting there practicing the music and the soprano next to me said hey you're flat and i said i know my throat's sore it's weird <laughs> and she was like you should go to the doctor and so i did and it turned out i had some other infection thing that had come kind of on the heels of you know you take antibiotics and it knocks out some weird things and you get something else and i never really recovered after mm. that wow i got a little bit better and a little bit worse and a little bit better and a little bit worse and had a weird string of symptoms that eventually included like twitching and weird metallic tastes in my mouth and i finally got diagnosed after all of that but i think that that's way more common than most people even realize yeah they're talking about it now with long covid Absolutely. and i know you had an, an interview recently about that that um this long covid is really and may may end up being some permutation of chronic fatigue syndrome that Absolutely. it's that triggering event yeah and i just i think it's really common it's it's more common than people can even necessarily trace back because you don't it may be something really small that triggers it yeah, absolutely. And and the thing with long COVID is so interesting because now it's in the, the, the public attention. But for years and years and years, uh, people like you have just not been believed, you know? Right. Um, and now it's like all of a sudden people are saying, oh, well, you know what? Maybe after you have a virus like this, maybe it can cause permanent issues and, and fatigue problems and, you know, weird muscle aches and, uh, you know, with long COVID, there's like chronic respiratory problems. It's like all of a sudden, like, yeah, maybe that's a thing. And you're like, yes, yes, I've been saying that for decades. You know, like, that's what we've been talking about for decades. Uh, and yes. it's it's so interesting to see, um, you know, 
like I'm I'm a, I'm a scientific person. I'm a huge believer in science, but sometimes science is ignored because people are not listened to. You know, like the the yes. science around this, I think, would have progressed a lot further, a lot faster, if if doctors would believe people when they say, "Hey, I'm I had a normal life until I had this weird virus, and now I can't get better." And you know, doctors are often just like, "Oh, well, you know, it's something you're doing. It's something about your." Um, uh, lifestyle choices, your dietary choices. So, you know, you just need to give it more time. You'll get better. They just don't listen. And people just give up trying to get help from doctors because they can't get them to help. Is that something that you've experienced? I experienced it a little bit with doctors and a little bit from people out mm. in the world. So I think there's a special challenge when you're a teenager and this is happening because people will layer on these um, preconceived ideas of what teenagers are. So I had teachers who were like, oh, she's just lazy or she just wants to get out of something. And I was an honor student taking honors classes. I never missed school. Even when I was at my sickest, I went to school every day. And yet I still had teachers who were like, oh, she must just want to get out of something. And they were, they weren't looking at me as an individual that they knew who was who had been a high performer who had been doing all the things up until then they were looking at me as like this stereotype of oh it's a teenager she must be overreacting she must be mm. just lazy she must be you know xyz mm, interesting and i see that in other teenagers i know another uh teenager in my area who you know had actually reached out to me because she knew this about me and she's experiencing the same thing now so she's had she's had this mysterious unexplained series of health issues and she's facing people who are saying oh well you know just be tough just you know man up and assuming that because she's a teenager she can't tell them what's actually going on because she must be overreacting and yeah. she must be being silly um i did also though have a doctor who when we'd been we'd been on this journey for a long time we'd gone off to Boston to see a specialist in uh, immunology, rheumatology and immunology or something like that. And he diagnosed me and I came back to my primary care provider with this diagnosis and she almost literally rolled her eyes. <laughs> and at the time, this was very much the like, oh, this is a bored housewife disease. Right. Mm -hmm. It was one of those things that like was dismissed because it appeared in women first and was mm -hmm. dismissed because it was about being tired. And so that just means you're not, you know, you're being lazy and laziness is a huge sin in our society. Right. Mm. So clearly that's the problem. And so she rolled her eyes and my mother, who has been my advocate through everything, mm. uh, said okay we're never going back to that doctor and immediately found me a new primary care provider because she mm. wasn't going to stand for that that fills me with joy i i <laughs> that, the the idea that your that your mother said that uh you know it's so important to have an advocate it's so important and especially as a teenager to have it be a parent is so important <laughs> it's so important um and I also think it's so important when a doctor responds like that, to, that you never go back, you know, that's also yeah. so important. I, you so, don't need anyone telling you to doubt yourself. Yes. You already doubt yourself plenty. Totally. You already spend a lot of time going, wait, am I overreacting? Could I just push through this? Yeah. Should I just try to you know, make this work? And that will 
almost literally kill you. <laughs> that will drive yeah. you to the brink of a full and total breakdown because your body is demanding something and you are not giving it what it needs. Mm. Oh, so true. And oh, I just, it breaks my heart when I hear those stories and about people who don't have someone to advocate for them, especially when they're, you know, kids or teenagers who they really just need an adult to say, look, I know this kid. I know this is not how they are. There is something wrong and we're going to figure it out. And that's what my mom did just over and over. Amazing. And when somebody said, there's nothing here, she said, okay, well, we're going to keep looking. It may not be here. You know, it may not be in the neurology scan, but maybe it's in this scan or maybe it's in this study, or maybe we have to go see this doctor. And she just kept looking. Wow. I'm, that's so amazing. Uh, I, that's so important. I'm, you know, your mom gets a gold star. That's so important. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me again, how old were you when you had this virus? I was probably about 15. Okay. And you were diagnosed at 16. I was diagnosed at 16. And this is like, so this must have been like around, uh, early 2000s. Yes. Because I graduated from high school in 2004 uh, and I was 16 when I graduated. So it was, yeah, it was like 2004, okay. 2003 that I was diagnosed, somewhere in there. Yeah. And I I'd say like... Right around the time where, you know, doctors were starting to uh, take chronic fatigue maybe a little bit more seriously, some of them, but others not remember, at all. <laughs> I remember I was actually, I was in Japan. I was in Japan and I'd uh, just checked into a, a hotel there and I got this text from my mother. And this was, I mean, I was in Japan in 2008, nine, somewhere around 2009. Let's say it was around then. And I got this text from my mother uh, or this email from my mother. And she was like, have you seen this research? And I picked up a newspaper. They had an English language newspaper there. And there was research about Epstein-Barr mm -hmm. and how they thought that this could be a contributing factor. Yeah. And, you know, that research evolved a lot since then. But it was the first time I ever looked at a piece of like traditional journalism, you know, mainstream media that said, hey, you have a condition and there may be a scientific reason for it. Wow. That was huge. Yeah. And, and that's like right around the time that you were diagnosed. Yeah, it was a, it was a few years after I was diagnosed. So I was uh I was diagnosed, like I said, I think around 2004. Yeah. Around when I graduated and then I went to college and so it was like right after I got out of college. So it would have been 2009. Yeah. And it's so interesting to think about people being diagnosed with this before that. You know, for me, I remember a few years back, I uh, I was watching The Golden Girls and there was an episode about chronic fatigue and it just like blew my mind. You know, I, mm -hmm. I was like, I feel so seen right now by The Golden Girls. <laughs> yes. And uh, they're good at that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, this doctor saying like, this is a, something you're going to be able to learn to live with, but it is a real thing. Like, this is a real thing that you're experiencing. Uh, and that's got to be the 80s, right? So, I mean, it's just, you know, representation like that um, is so important for people who are just like being, having their condition denied all the time. And mm -hmm. it's like when you're, when people deny the existence of your condition that you've been diagnosed with, 
um, it's just so incredibly harmful. It's so incredibly hurtful because it's like, okay, so you're saying that chronic fatigue doesn't exist. So what what are you saying about me that I'm making this up? That I'm that I'm lazy or that I you know I want to be tired all day long every day, or I'm just not sleeping right or something? Like people have all these assumptions that they jump to instead of you know having any understanding about what some another human being is actually experiencing and then as these research studies come out you know we learn more about epstein barr as this potential triggering factor for chronic fatigue syndrome they change the name eventually to to me which you know i i still need to learn how to say that uh from memory <laughs> the long <laughs> version of that um so yeah, uh, and now with COVID, it's like another line in the sand moment for for chronic fatigue syndrome, where it's like, yeah, we're now accepting this like post viral illness uh, into the mainstream. Uh, you know, over the course of your life with this disease, over the course of your experience of having been diagnosed with this, these changes in societal um, perception have they impacted you personally? I think that they've made me more likely to mention it. Because for years, people didn't even know I had it. You know, some of my closest friends had no idea I had a chronic illness mm. because I would, I don't want to say hide it necessarily, but I would purposefully not bring it up. You know, I would just be tired or, and, and they were like, oh, are you feeling okay? Oh yeah, I just didn't sleep well or something. Mm. You know, I would like pass off these things. And I really just didn't feel like I could say hey, this is a thing because I couldn't handle or didn't want to put myself in a situation to handle the doubt and mm. to handle the potential that somebody who I cared about would say, okay, yeah, but really you're being, <laughs> you know, I just didn't want to have to do that. And now, you know, with this book and I didn't write this book on purpose. I didn't sit down and go, oh, I'm going to write about chronic illness. Mm. I, I wrote this character into another book as like a side character and my aunt who has read all my books and has been an early reader on many of them said wait what's the deal with with that character what's really going on with him and i was like well in my mind he has some sort of chronic thing like i did when i was in school like you know that's he's he's experiencing that and she was like well why don't you write about that and it was the first time i really stopped in however many years it's been the first time I've really stopped and looked at it and said, is this something that I want to talk about? Mm. And I think that if we weren't at this place in time, I don't know if I would have talked about it because I didn't, I up, up until very recently, I haven't felt like I wanted to be a person with a chronic illness. Like I wasn't claiming my, my space in the Spoonie network, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't ready to do that. And I think I can't not do that anymore. You know, there, there are kids out there who still need somebody to stand up and say, hey, I have this. And not only do I have this, but I have a very functional, fairly successful life mm. with this thing. And you can too. I know it seems really hard right now in high school with nobody believing you, but you can get to a place where you have your own business and four books out and, you know, all these other things that I'm doing. You can get there too. Yeah. Amazing. Tell me about being in high school and getting diagnosed. So you you must have known something was wrong and you must have yeah. doubted yourself so much. You've talked about you talked about that and you know and I relate to this so much because um I have this weird I still don't know what my chronic illness is, but it has it has come in waves throughout my life and one of the first uh serious ones was in high school and um 
I just remember not believing myself, no one else believing me, except for the people who did, you know, and the family mm -hmm. who did. Uh, and, you know, you're, you talk about like walking up those stairs in school and having to stop and rest. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. I remember it's like one day you can like run laps around the track. And then the next day it's like, you can't even, you know, like the, the distance between classrooms is insurmountable. Yes. Um, so yeah, tell me about being that age and then getting that diagnosis and being like, oh my God, there's, there's a word to put to this now. Well, I think the hardest thing about being a teenager in general, but in this situation especially, is you don't have norms in your head, right? You don't know what's normal yet. Mm. You haven't lived like the full spectrum of, of what you can live. And so it's really hard for you as a teenager. Your body's doing all the body things that teenagers' bodies do. You know, your brain's doing crazy things as chemistry changes in your brain. And it's really hard to say, wait, this isn't normal. And until it gets really bad, until it gets to a point where it is unignorable, it's really hard to make that call. Mm. You know, I think as an adult with an understanding, a, a better understanding of how my body works and what I can expect from it, if something's drastically wrong, I know it. But I didn't at 15 years old. Sure. And so you know, I didn't share with people. I didn't tell people what was going on until after I was diagnosed, basically, or until it got to the point where I was going to doctors often enough that like people started to ask me. And even my closest friends, um, you know, I had a couple of really close friends in high school, as I hope we all do. And I, you know, hid it from them until there were like outward signs. I kept losing weight. And people kept saying, oh, you look so good. I was pale. I mean, I was like a ghost, <laughs> but I was losing weight. And so that was great, which that's a whole other thing that we don't have to get into. But there's body image things that are really damaging among teenagers mm. uh, and the rest of us. Uh, so I, when I finally told my friends, they were immediately supportive. And they were like, okay, so what are you doing? Like, what, what are we doing? You're, you're telling your parents this is going on, right? And I was like, eh. And they were like, no, you're telling them or we are. And I was like, okay. So I told my parents what was up um, and like how bad it had gotten. And that's when we really started to push to, to go to doctors and to do all that stuff. Uh, but then when we finally got the diagnosis, um, we called a meeting with the teachers that I had, you know, in high school, you have a bunch of teachers, right? And so I call, we called a meeting with all my teachers. And I don't remember a whole lot of that meeting because there's huge chunks that I just don't remember. It's part of the mm. illness of, yeah. you know, your your mind is so consumed with your own body that you, you're you not paying attention. So sure. the part that I do remember vividly, though, is the one teacher who expressed disbelief, <laughs> right? I don't remember what anyone, how anyone else responded, but I remember that one teacher and her just kind of like, you could see in her body language that she was just like, oh, okay, yeah, mm -hmm, she's sick. Yep. And you could see that you could feel that. And even in my disconnected state, I could feel and see that response from this one teacher out of the like eight I had. Um, and I never, I never trusted her again. You know, I never really forgave her for that reaction. So being able to say, no, this is a thing is really gratifying, but it's a lot more gratifying if it's a thing that's like well-researched. You know, I had a friend around the same time experiencing lots of symptoms and it turned out she had Lyme disease. Yeah, Lyme disease is a 
known thing, right? It's documented. People know a lot about it. There are treatments for Lyme. And so I was like, that's not fair. I wish I had Lyme disease, (laughs) which is like (laughs) the things that you say in these situations. Uh, And I remember her like being so excited for her when she got her diagnosis. I was like, oh man, I hope that happens for me soon. It's just such a weird twisting of what you expect to be celebrating. Yeah. Actually in On the Bank of Oblivion, there's this point where uh, the main character is expressing his frustration uh, at the clear test results. And I, I'm sure you can identify with this where you you go to the doctor and you're getting some test. They're going to do a blood work or they're going to like scan your brain or something. And you get the results back and they go, oh, everything looks great. No problems. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, right? <laughs> there are problems. I don't know why you can't see them because I can certainly feel them. Mm. And he talks about that, how the doctors always seem so pleased, like, yay, you have <laughs> nothing wrong. And it's a it's a completely different perspective it's like like you said earlier like this alice in wonderland sense of like looking through the mirror and seeing the wrong thing of everybody's going oh great there's nothing wrong with you and you're going no no there is figure it out please because i don't know how much longer i can you know exist in this space not knowing so diagnosis is awesome knowing more about your disease is better (laughs) uh And I'm really excited about the research that's happening. Um, Stanford is talking about a potential biomarker mm. that they, you know, they may have identified, which I find just like, like really, you could actually say for certain because this is the other thing. This is a condition that's diagnosed by process of elimination in right. some ways. Right. You know, oh, you don't have MS, you don't have Lyme, you don't have lupus, you must have this, right? And that's also puts you in a sort of limbo of, well, what if, what if I don't, what if there's something else? What Absolutely. if I didn't look hard enough? Yeah. And it turns out I actually have something that could have been treated all this time or could, I could have been cured. And that's the, you know, that's the secret hope, right? That, mm. that there's some magical cure that you're going to get. And I just, I don't think that's going to happen, you know, and I'm, I've accepted that in my lifetime. That's probably not going to happen. Uh, and so I'm just shifting my life in ways and have spent my whole life building a life in ways that allows me to live with this in the best possible way. Yeah, which, you know, takes oftentimes takes years to get to the point of recognizing that that's what you have to do. Um, when yeah. did you start to make that shift? I think it was actually really early because I did have my mother advocating for me. I had, you know, that specialist who we went back to a few times who was very patient and very like aware of me as a human being and not just as somebody on the other side of the computer or something. Mm-hmm. So I remember very early on the the doctor saying to me, if you have to, any stress will, will make things worse, make you feel worse. But if you have to choose between a mental stress and a physical stress, choose the physical stress. Interesting. Yeah. And he basically, he said that like, a mental stress will stick with you, right? You'll It'll keep bothering you. Mm. But a physical stress is a, like an isolated incident that, that you can then move on from. So I remember even in the last few months that I was in high school, there was a big event I wanted to go to. And it was going to be an overnight event with a bunch of teenagers. It was going to be really loud. It was going to be, uh, you know, strange hours. It was going to be everything that's bad for me. 
but it was also going to be with all my friends doing something really fun that I had been looking forward to. And so my mom and I sat down and had this talk about like, is this worth it? And for me, the answer was it's worth it. Even knowing I'm probably going to feel bad for a week after I want this and I will feel bad every day that I'm not at this thing. I will feel bad not having gone and I will feel left out and I will feel like I let this defeat me and all those things. So I think I very early started to think in terms of everything you do is a Mm trade-off and what are you willing to give up? Sometimes I stay in, you know, I was going to go to a concert or I was going to go to an art event or I was going to go to a book signing, you know, someone else's book signing, not my own. Uh, (laughs) Because I don't cancel those, but you know, I was going to go to one of these things, and I say, you know what, it's not a good choice right now. Mm-hmm. It's not. I would enjoy the thing, but it would leave me too drained for the work I have to do tomorrow, or for another event that I would need to do. And I think everyone makes those trade offs in life. Even people who are quote healthy have to make those trade offs, but they don't always have to think deeply about them. And. For me, it's been something I've been thinking about as a trade-off, as a conscious decision to choose this over that since I was in high school. Yeah. As I've gotten older, the the things have gotten bigger, right? So I don't work in a traditional office setting. I'm fairly certain I can't Mm -hmm. because consistently having to get up really early in the morning and be on from nine to five is probably not realistic for me. So I've, you know, I never even attempted that. I, I made the, the decision early on that that was not something I wanted. And I fully embrace the indie life, as I call it. You know, I have the Indie Book Talk podcast and I'm independently published and I run my own business and I have my own roster of clients and I manage my own time. And all of that feels really liberating. But in some ways, it's a choice I made out of necessity. Yeah. So... It's a matter of embracing the necessity, saying this is what my body can do. This is what I'm capable of. And it's, I mean, it's kind of like somebody who, if you were born with one leg, you would find ways to be mobile that worked for you. You know, that might mean some sort of mobility aid, or it might mean learning to, you know, hop around on one leg like it could be all kinds of things but there's nothing wrong with it it's just how your body is yeah so how do you work with that instead of constantly sitting there going oh if only i had two legs yeah do you deal with any of those feelings of you know this isn't fair that i have to make all of these compromises all of these decisions are things that i have to think so much deeper over and you know healthy healthy people might um have to make those decisions sometimes like, oh man, I just worked so long today. I don't have the energy to go out tonight. Uh, but but the calculation is very different because, you know, it's like uh, you doing, you pushing yourself too hard could mean that you can't function for another week, uh, which is not something that a healthy person would have to worry about. So uh, that is inherently unfair, even though it is just the reality, it's a necessity, it's what you deal with. Um, do you Do you fight against that unfairness ever? I do find that I sometimes fight against that unfairness, but there's actually a different unfairness that's far more challenging. And that's when something bad happens. And I know that the impact of that bad thing is going to be a hundred times worse because of my Mm, condition. Yeah. So, you know, oh, we got, I got locked out of my car and it's really cold out 
And I know that every second I stand out here in the cold is going to make me just a little bit worse the mm. next day. <laughs> and so you're raging against the thing, you know, the this the carelessness of locking your keys in your car, but you're also raging against the if only my body didn't hate me. And that's often like where I jump to is my body hates me. Mm. And I have to remember and remind myself very specifically and emphatically that that's not the case. Yeah. My body's just doing what it does. It doesn't hate me. You know, it doesn't, it's not mad at me. And we have to work through this together, me and my body. Uh, and, but that's the hard part for me that the knowledge that a stressor is bigger for me is, is very frustrating. Cause it's like, okay, it's bad enough. I have to deal with this bad thing, but now I have to deal with two bad things just because of who I am. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What, what are your coping mechanisms? What, uh, what helps you get through this? Um, so structuring my life is kind of the big, large scale coping mechanism, right? I don't get up early in the morning. I don't take meetings early in the morning. Uh, if you want to schedule something on my calendar and I send you my calendar link, you will find nothing before one o'clock. <laughs> That's because I'm not always reliable before one o'clock. And if I do have to force myself to be bright and functional for a client, uh, it might throw off the rest of my day if I have to do that at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So that's one of the things. Uh, sleep is another one. I know there are lots of people who say, oh, I can exist on six hours of sleep or five hours of sleep. I think they're lying. But even if they're <laughs> not, <laughs> I absolutely need eight to nine to 10 hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. And I make an effort, even when exciting things are happening, even on the weekends, whatever's going on, I make an effort to get up and to go to bed at the same time every day. Because that just puts me in the right position to function. Yeah. In terms of coping when, you know, bad things happen or flare-ups happen, uh, I, it's, it's an ongoing process. You know, sometimes it's call someone and say, you know, like call my mom or a, another friend who knows about this and just say, look, I'm having a really bad day. Like, I just feel really bad today. And to have them not judge me like it's funny they don't even have to be it's not like they have to be like oh you poor thing i know what you're going through right i literally just need them to not go well why are you being so lazy mm -hmm. all i need is like a neutral reaction and that helps yeah and sometimes it is also just shutting off everything like okay i i'm crashing and so i'm gonna lay on my couch and i'm gonna watch children's cartoons and I'm going to just accept that that's what I'm doing. And I'm going to make sure I'm drinking lots of water uh, because that's like the minimum good action I can do here. And I will do literally nothing for the next however many hours <laughs> yeah. until my body starts to be like, ah, I want to do something. And then I know that I'm that I'm starting to come up from this. Um, but it's a constant battle to not judge that, to not say, oh, you're being lazy or, oh, if you only did this thing, but look at all the work you have to do. If I, if I'm laying on the couch thinking about all the work I have to do, that's not restful, right? That's not helpful. So I have to almost create like a partition in my brain of no, this is, we're doing sick now. We're doing rest. We're doing sleep. And we're going to deal with all that when we have the energy to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I relate to this so much. You said a couple things about, you know, listening to your body as far as like listening to it when it's ready to 
get up and go or listening to your body when you eat beef and it doesn't feel good and you don't know why and that doesn't matter. You just don't do it. Uh, you know, people with chronic illness often have to develop these kind of relationships with our bodies where um, we're just listening to it all the time, you know, like kind of aware of it all the time because it is often uncomfortable or in pain and always sending you these signals and you have to kind of learn how to be aware of them. Otherwise, you will go too far in the wrong direction. It makes for an interesting relationship, I think. Yeah. It, and it's it's a challenging relationship because if you if you 100% listen to your body, you know, if you did absolutely what your body asked of you, or at least for me, I would lay on the couch and never do anything ever <laughs> yeah. again, right? Like yeah. and when I wanted to when I got restless, I'd like turn over, right? But I can't do that. And so there is a certain amount of filtering those signals and saying, "Okay, yeah, I know that you're, you know, you're freaked out because we're we're working hard on something and you're worried about what that's going to do, but is it really going to hurt mm. or do you just think it's going to hurt? And I'm making this sound like it's like I'm much better at it than I actually am. Like I would say probably a good 50% of the time I make the wrong call or mm. I I ignore too much. And then I find myself struggling later. But I am actively working on it. You know, I, it's something I'm working on right now. I, I've started working with a nutritionist, and a lot of what we're doing is literally just reminding me to listen mm. to my body and to hear what it has to say about food and about hunger and about how it feels in space and in my clothes and all of those things and not worry about what it looks like or what other people might think of it because it's not their body, it's my body. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you, you you brought this up a little bit earlier, but the, there is societal expectations and judgments about our bodies that is so harmful when you're trying to find the best way to live in your body, especially mm -hmm. when you have a challenge. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. What matters is that you have the energy to get through the day, you know, and whatever right. choices make getting through the day a little bit easier are the ones you have to make. And I, something I've been struggling with a little bit recently because, you know, I am not able to exercise the way that I once was. And um, I, I have a lot of vanity that has been baked into me over the years and things that I have to let go as I get older and can't exercise the way that I want because that's not what my body will allow. You know, there are certain things that you can't control unless you do it in an unhealthy way. Right. Right. Yeah. If, if you have a chronic condition and you also want a six pack, <laughs> you probably setting yourself up for upset. And the question is, it, it is that choice. What are you willing to give up? And what do you demand of your life? Mm. That when, when I get to the point where I'm like, Oh, I have to lay on the couch or I'm, you know, feeling bad about my body or whatever, I try, and I, again, not always good at this, but I try to come back to, yeah, but what are you trying to do in mm. the world? And is losing five pounds going to help you do that? No. Is getting up off this couch right now and pushing yourself to the point where you're actually going to burn out going to help you do that? No. So why do you care? If you, if I can write books, if I can talk to kids, 
about the, the hard things in their life and give them stories that help them deal with those things. If I can encourage people to be authentically and completely themselves because that's what the world actually needs mm. and to stop freaking out about how they're not like someone they see on TV or in a magazine or whatever. If I can do that, I'm doing what I need to do. Mm -hmm. And the way I get there doesn't matter. Yeah, that's a, I, I love that. That's such an important message. You mentioned early on that you live in your, um, in your, uh, in your house with your partner. So yes. I'm curious to hear a little bit about the, uh, again, something else that I experience a lot is this idea that the chronic illness is kind of like a third party in your relationship. Um, is that something that you've had to learn how to manage? Well, we have a, we have a very independent relationship. So we live in the same house. Um, we've been together for five years, six, I, I've lost track for <laughs> many years. And um, so we, in many ways, live kind of like semi-independent lives. And we just, we're, we live them in, in orbit with each other. Hmm. And so I think that in a lot of ways, my condition is, is less of a third party than it might be in a relationship where people have, for example, kids that they have to manage sure. together and those sorts of things. But for us, I think it really comes down to um, me having to articulate why, you know, and say like, I'm really tired right now, or I'm not feeling well today, or today's, you know, today's a bad day for that. Uh, the more I can articulate it, the easier it becomes. And he's very understanding of my, you know, of this happening. He doesn't always get it, but he's understanding. And so if I say, this is what I need, then that's usually what I'll get. Right. And it's, I think easy because most of what I need is I just need you to like, leave me alone for a bit because like I can't <laughs> handle talking to another human right now. No matter how much I love this person, I just can't handle it right now. I need yeah. like silence. Uh, but no, I don't think it's been a huge disruptor in our relationship really. Um, but I fully see how it could be. And uh, I had a previous relationship where uh the other person was not quite as understanding and it did sometimes he was more demanding of attention. Mm. Um, and so that was sometimes very challenging for me because I felt like I was maybe like being a bad person or a selfish person by saying like, I can't pay attention to you right now. Um, whereas that's not the case in my current relationship. If I say I can't pay attention to you right now because I don't feel well, then that's fine. And I will step away and I will come back unless it's urgent, you know, unless it's something like I need you now. Um, then there's, you know, talking about what we're going to do for dinner tomorrow can wait. Yeah. <laughs> it's not important. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And I, I love what you're saying about being in each other's orbit. That's very much how I try to approach it as well. It's something I've talked a lot about on this show with my partner who's come on the show and talk about it, how we've been, you know, living in uh, two separate apartments on the same floor of a building and how that's really helped our relationship to, to be in each other's orbit without being in the same orbit seems to really help with chronic illness for, for my experience. And it sounds like in yours as well, you know, being, being there for each other, but also having space to be alone and be sick when you want mm -hmm. to be is so is so important you know i have a lot of those days as well where i i if you you want to ask me what i want to do for dinner in 
in seven hours? That's way too hard. You know, that's way too hard of a question. Are you kidding me? Ask me in five hours, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to decide if I can stand to get up and go get a drink, glass of water. Yes. So, no, I can't think about that right now. Yeah. I'm in survival yeah. mode. And until I am sure that I'm surviving, I, I can't think that far ahead. Uh, and then developing language around, you know, uh, when you have the energy to say, hey, if I was rude earlier... It, was, it had nothing to do with you. It was me being completely exhausted. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you for checking in on me if I wasn't my kindest self. Because I don't know. I was, like, barely conscious, you know? Like, that thing of, you yeah. know, uh, sometimes you aren't aware of what's happening around you because your body is experiencing this, like, maelstrom of exhaustion and pain. How are you supposed to know what's happening next to you you know you can only be inside of yourself at that moment you can't be paying attention to the world outside of you so i always try to make sure that when i come back to the world i try to address you know think back it's like who was here what happened is there any <laughs> chance that i was a dick you know is, do i need to apologize <laughs> to anyone uh and that's a skill that i just started developing over the last you know five years i'd say in my current relationship because i do think that it negatively impacted my relationships before that. And I always would blame the healthy person of being, you mm -hmm. know, like, you can't hold anything against me when I'm sick. Like, it's priorities, you know, survival priorities in those moments. Um, I have to do what I have to do, and you need to understand that, you know? And But, yeah. but from the other person's point of view, that might not be how they experience it at all. Because if you're not clearly articulating what you're experiencing, because you probably can't because you're in, you know, survival mode, then they don't know. You know, they often don't know what you're experiencing. How, I, I always expect people to take one look at me and be like, oh man, he's having a rough day. Uh, he gets carte blanche to, to say and do whatever he wants. And that's not, that's not the way the world is. And it took me a really long time to figure that out. Well, and I think it's important to have the conversations in the in-between times. Exactly. Right? So yeah. when you're feeling healthy to sit down with the person and say, look, today, today's a good day, but sometimes there's going to be not good days and here's what happens on not good days here's how i feel or how i might feel and here's how you can help me if you want to i think is really empowering for the other person because they don't have to guess and then to have some sort of signal to them so maybe you know it might be like almost the kind of code because mm -hmm. you don't necessarily want to say hey i feel crappy today you know for me if i say uh you know i'm tired today that's usually code for I'm having a bad chronic fatigue day. Yeah. And so don't expect too much from me. But if the person knows that and they know what that code means, then they can respond appropriately and nobody gets their feelings hurt because you're not expecting more than they are even capable of knowing that they need to give. Mm -hmm. And they're not asking more from you than you have the energy for at that time. Absolutely. And those, those things will start to happen naturally over time, but it is good to, you know, stop and take stock and address them and, and confirm them with your partner. Uh, you know, my partner and I have tried a bunch of different codes. And the one that really works is I'm crashing, you know, like if I'm crashing, yeah. that means that uh, my functionality is heading downhill, and I need to start to see to that, or get on the couch and put some TV on or play a video game or whatever it is the distraction therapy that I'm such a big fan of. Um, but we tried a number system at one point of like, what number are you at? You know, one to four. Oh, and that reminds me of the terrible pain scales. <laughs> okay. So I, I don't, I, when I was a kid, 
And this was the thing. All the doctors I went to, they gave me these, there were the pain scales. And with adults, for some reason, they give you numbers and it's like one to 10. With kids, they give you like smiley faces. (laughs) It's like smiley face to frowny face. And at, you know, 15 and 16 years old, that was both really annoying and sort of lame. Like, (laughs) really? And I remember I I made such a big deal about how obnoxious it was that they had these smiley faces. So, yes, I can't imagine having to do that now, like in my relationship. It would be like, no. Yeah, well, it didn't work because we could could never remember what the numbers meant, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's too complicated. Um, Well, I have one last question for you. So, you... You mentioned, you know, the the message that you want to get out there to kids and to uh, to help other people who are experiencing something similar. So, you know, thinking back to yourself when you were first dealing with these issues in high school, what is the message that you want to send to someone like like you were now that you've had, you know, almost two decades of of living with this? You've learned so much. You've you know, and even though you have learned so much, you're still just working it out. You know, we all are. It's it's a process. And I always find it so hard to pinpoint specific advice for someone who's at the beginning of that process, because I don't know what information I could have even inhaled at that point in my life. You know what I mean? So, wh- right. what is the message? What What do you want to get out there to other people experiencing something similar? I think the first thing is what you're experiencing is real. Whether anyone else understands it or believes it, you are the expert on your own body. And yes, you are learning. And yes, you're figuring it out. But you are the expert here. And everyone else around you has to listen to what you report is going on inside your body. Mm. If they're not going to listen to that, then keep looking until you find someone who does. Mm -hmm. That includes doctors. That includes, you know, if your parents are really dismissive, maybe you talk to your grandparents. Maybe you talk to an aunt or an uncle, someone who can have some sort of an adult that you trust who can have some sort of impact here and can help advocate for you because you are going to be tired and sick and overwhelmed and you're really going to need someone to help kind of be in charge of this so you don't have to. That is the biggest thing. The other thing is you are learning and don't hold yourself too don't be too hard on yourself about the mistakes you make you know you're gonna try treatments that don't work you're gonna push yourself too hard and crash you're gonna not do something that then you later regret not doing because of your fear of how it will make you feel you know you're gonna mess up there's no way to do this perfectly because there's no guidebook for this Many people have experienced what you're experiencing, but no one's done it exactly the way you're doing it. So you are the expert. You are the only one who can make that call on what is good for you. Now, that doesn't mean you don't listen to anyone. There are going to be great people, doctors and teachers and parents who are going to have to be able to listen to you and then use their experience to give you something helpful. And you want to be open to those people. But they can't tell you what's going on inside you. Only you can do that. Yeah. The last thing I would say is it's actually the dedication in my book, 
which I have in front of me. Uh, <laughs> the dedication is to all the kids who don't yet have names for what's hurting them. You are not alone. I so love just that. like remember that. Yeah, and that's I that is such a great message because that I think is the thing that would have really helped me in high school is to know that I wasn't alone. It's helped me so much in making this podcast. You know, you talk about being ready to sort of come out as having a chronic illness publicly and mm -hmm. talk about it publicly. Um, this podcast has really been that for me. And the more episodes I make, the less alone I feel in what I've been going through. And there's this, this army of people like us who have been gaslit by doctors or family members uh, and people don't believe them and they have to go it alone. And I, I feel so lucky that my family has always had my back, but there are people out there whose families don't have their back. And I love what you said about, you know, if that's your family, keep looking, find, find chosen family. I'm a huge believer in chosen family. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, with all the tools that are available to us now with the internet that didn't exist when we were in high school. I mean, when I was in high school, the internet had like just been created. <laughs> it was relatively new, you know, like we were, I wasn't on MySpace until college, I think. So, <laughs> Same, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but with the tools that exist now to connect to chronic illness community, you don't have to be alone in what you're going through. Um, and it's so scary to kind of open yourself up to the world not believing you by being public about it. And uh, But there are people that will believe you. And, you know, the doctors that don't believe you, the people that don't believe you, they don't matter. It's the people that will believe you that matter. What you're experiencing is real. And it's so important to, you know, I try to be kind of clinical about what I'm experiencing. Because when I let emotion seep into it, it can be really overwhelming. And it can make what I say less believable in some ways, you know? So I try to be a little mm -hmm. clinical about it, if that makes sense. Um, and try to be really introspective about, like, what is it that I'm feeling that is worth sharing? Uh, and, and that's been, you know, it's been helpful for me. Like, taking videos has been helpful for me on the days where I have, like, twitchiness or muscle spasms that can get mm -hmm. kind of extreme sometimes. Um, and I shared one of those on TikTok, and it was horrifying to me, like, to let other people see me that way. Uh, but for for the people that listen to this podcast who um, saw that, I feel like it gave them a better understanding about what I am living through, even though I'm not like that all the time, just, you know, right. understanding that that is the scale of existence for me. Um, and it, it helps to kind of let go of this this burden around being chronically ill, because it can become just sort of like a passenger, but not like a heavy burden. It can become... Like right. a, a backpack, a comfortable backpack that you have to wear. And would you rather not wear a backpack all day, every day? Sure. It's hot outside. I don't want to wear a backpack every day. But but it can become manageable if you learn how to manage it. And it sounds like, you know, you're, you've been on that journey for a while now and have made a lot of progress, which is amazing. You know, and the way that you're processing it through your fiction writing, I think is really, really cool. So cool. So thank you. I, I, I want to remind everyone where to go to find this book and then tell us everything that you want to plug. Tell us about the Indie Book Talk po podcast. Uh, you know, you mentioned that, but uh, tell us where we can go to find everything that you do and what you're working on. 
Okay. The book is called On the Bank of Oblivion, and it is available wherever books are sold. Uh, if you go to my website, emmagauthor.com, uh, you will soon find information about it. I'm also very active on Twitter as Emma G. Writer, not to be confusing. Uh, and you'll know you're in the right place because you'll see all these books and conversations about talking about hard things and fun things like that. <laughs> uh, on the Indie Book Talk podcast, which you can listen to wherever you like to listen to podcasts, you could go listen to it as soon as this one's over if you'd like. Um, the Indie Book Talk <laughs> podcast, we talk about all things indie publishing. So we talk about independently published books, small press books. We talk about the writing process. We talk about how to get books into bookstores. We talk about, uh, we talk to publishers and authors and editors and all the people associated with writing. Uh, we've had guests who have turned things into movies. We've had guests who turned movies into books. We've had all kinds of different people and we're always growing that network. We're also an international podcast in that we interview people from all over the world. Uh, we've had people from South Africa and Australia and Mexico and all kinds of places. So I really encourage you to check that out if you're even the slightest bit curious about what it means to be independently published and how that world is rapidly changing. Uh, but I really hope that people will read this book. There's a lot of myself in it and there's some beautiful cover art, uh, including a amazing custom tarot card drawn by my assistant henry nadu mm. uh it's it's so cool <laughs> i'm kind of in love with it awesome. uh and so the book is called again on the bank of oblivion is that available on uh in any digital formats like on kindle or anything it is available in ebook you should be able to get it anywhere you can get ebooks and if you want it from some seller and you can't find it send me an email and i will see about getting it there cool and what about a uh, like audiobook format? I have not yet done audiobook because it is a very expensive proposition. Mm -hmm. um, so I've I've kind of put off turning books into audiobooks, but I think that's very close on the horizon. Awesome. This might be the book that I decide to do it with. Yeah, I mean, especially for the accessibility option, I know a lot of people, myself included, because of chronic illness, have a harder time reading than I used to. Um, just you right. know using my eyes in that way and then remembering what the sentence prior said got a lot harder when my illness flared up. <laughs> um, that is very true. Yeah. So if you guys help me um, sell enough copies of this book so I can afford to yes. yeah. <laughs> turn it into an audiobook, that would be fabulous because I would awesome. love to have that option for people. Um, and it just would be super cool to be able to listen to someone read my book. Absolutely. That's, that's, let's do it. Everyone go buy this book. And I love, <laughs> I love digital copies because I can make the text bigger, which does help my, uh, like the ocular strain, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's all sorts of, you know, newer, newer ways to be accessible with everything these days, which is really exciting. Are you on TikTok or Instagram? I am on TikTok and Instagram. I am an inconsistent contributor to TikTok. Uh, but you will find me there. I think I'm Emma G. Writer on TikTok. Uh, and I do a little series that I call Writer Under Desk. And it's me coming to you live from under my desk, only not live recorded. <laughs> and uh, I'm also on Instagram as Life Imperative, uh, named after Imperative Press Books, which is my publishing house. Cool. Yeah, those are the two platforms I use for the podcast. So I will uh, tag you on both of those when your episode comes out. 
awesome. Yeah. Well, Emma, you did a really awesome job today. This has been super fun. I'm so curious to to check out this book because I love the idea behind it and um, I'm, you know, I'm a huge science fiction nerd, so I'm a huge fan of this idea of kind of wrapping a message inside of fiction. Uh, you know, sci-fi is all about examining humanity and the future through the lens of, you know, fictional stories. And doing that with a chronic illness is brilliant. It's such a great idea. And it's, I think it could be a really cool way to provide catharsis and understanding and to feel seen for someone else experiencing th something similar. So I think that's awesome. But you also just did a really great job telling your story today. Um, you know, you made me laugh so many times and that's what I'm all about is like, I want to talk about hard things and laugh my way through it. Um, that's what I love about doing this show kind of similarly to what you were saying about Terry Pratchett, as far as, you know, examining hard things, but making it funny. Why not? <laughs> Absolutely. You got to laugh. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I just have to say thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story. You did a really, really fantastic job. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about my book and to, you know, come out as a person with a chronic illness. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, and Justin Minnick. And our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpain podcast.